Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of That Brooklyn Film Show. This week we'll be discussing movies inspired by the play Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw, which is loosely based on the Greek myth of the same name. So to get a little bit into the Pygmalion myth before we get into the Pygmalion play, in Greek mythology, Pygmalion was a sculptor who fell in love with one of his sculptures, which then came to life. So essentially, it is about a character who has made someone literally by sculpting a statue or figuratively by giving them lessons in speech, behavior, or etiquette, and then falls in love with that creation. Before we get into the first movie, do you have any thoughts on the Pygmalion story in general, the idea of what it is and everything? Yeah, I would definitely say that Pygmalion films in general tend to have a very, I mean, they're all Pygmalion films, so they tend to have a very common theme, but I think they kind of share deeper themes with each other as far as it goes with like beauty standards and stuff like that, or acceptability politics and stuff like that. So as we get into the movies, I think we'll definitely discuss more about what these films mean from a modern day standard and then a standard based on past expectations. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think a, a big part of it, like you mentioned, does have that whole acceptability aspect, especially when so Almost all of the movies we watched are kind of like the two lead characters are the romantic interests of one another. There's one of them that's a little bit different. But in all of them, it's I think the thing that you we have to kind of examine is at what point in the movie does the character actually fall in love with the other lead character? Because it's kind of like, again, they like the trope says or the theme says, you're falling in love with your creation. So are you truly falling in love with that person for who they are or is it for who you made them to be? And I feel like in some of them, it seems like it's who they are and others, it seems like who they were made to be. I also think it's arguable from when we start discussing the films, whether the love was a two-way street versus was it one person falling in love with the creation while another person was more so not as in love with and the other I also, person. But I feel like... I also, but I feel like it's kind of hard to discuss without people knowing exactly yeah, what so we're talking about. Yeah, so you want to dive into the first like, film? Okay. Yeah, let's do the deep dives. Yeah. So the first film we're going to be talking so about is actually Pygmalion, which came out in 1938, which is directly based off of the play by George Bernard Shaw. And the synopsis is when linguistics professor Henry, Henry Higgins, played by Leslie Howard, boasts that he can pass off Cockney flower girl Eliza Doolittle, played by Wendy Hiller, as a princess with only six months training, Colonel George Pickering, played by Scott Sunderland, takes him up on the bed. Eliza moves into the Higgins home and begins her rigorous training after the professor comes to a financial agreement with her dustman father, Alfred, played by Wilfred Lawson. But the plucky young woman is not the only one undergoing a transformation. This film won the Academy Award back in 19, I'm assuming 39, for Best Screenplay. It was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Actress. And again, like I mentioned, it's based off of the play Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. It was directed by Anthony Asquith and Leslie Howard. And the film scores, so it got a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes critic scores and an 87% audience score. I feel like for a movie that came out in 1938, movie scores you kind of have to take with a grain of salt. I guess you can, like, 
take up all of the reviews from then and maybe even more recent ones. But then you have to think about it if you're looking at it from a lens of now or how the reviews were. And modern ones are so old yeah. ones. But yeah. with that, let's get into this first movie. What did you think of this one? Would, this was my favorite film of the bunch, which I know you were like, oh, wow, really? Because I think that this movie played with the trope in a way that was most real to society, where it felt less, much, much less romanticized than the other films that we watched. So, for instance, the whole Pygmalion concept in this movie was not really glorified as like, oh, my God, I'm making you pretty, and then we're going to fall in love and then get married. It was more so like, this guy's a jerk, and he's trying to do this for his own satisfaction and taking this person out of the, the mud in order to, like, turn her into this ideal lady. But the whole movie is questioning, like, one, what is an ideal lady? Two, it kept questioning, like, oh, what is your intentions with this woman? Like, they were like, there was a line where he's like, oh, do you have ill intentions for this woman? And he says, like, oh, what man does not have ill intentions for this for a woman? Like, stuff like that. It kept asking questions that were, like, pretty pertinent to the modern times and to those times where I think that anyone that's doing this in real life, like, taking someone, changing them for their own good and their own will is not a good person to me. Like, that's someone that's manipulative. They have an agenda. And I think this film was the one that best showed that. And even the, in the end, this man was a jerk till the very end. That's why I don't, like, we were arguing if, um, well, not arguing, but I think it was this movie you thought I was talking about where I was like, I don't think they fell in love in the end. I think it was more so him in love with his creation and her just like, okay, I don't, I'm not going to go back out on the street, but I don't love you as a person. Because, like, the very last thing she was saying to him was like, yo, you're a jerk. And that was pretty much consistent throughout the whole thing. I think that the, uh, the uh, triumph in this movie was more so her overcoming her stand status in society by conforming to, I guess, a more socially accepted person but i don't think that it was meant to paint him in a good light basically i think he was supposed to be the villain of the film and she was more so in combat with him because he was representative of a society that didn't accept women who were from her neck of the woods basically yeah i agree i think that he truly was the villain of the movie i would kind of disagree that they don't accept women who, well, no, I agree that they don't accept women, but I also kind of feel like it's they don't accept anyone from that social standing. Like, she was supposed to be very poor. You know, she didn't have a proper accent. And you have, like, this whole plot line where he's essentially tormenting her to get her to conform to what he wants. And when she finally gets there, and it's kind of a spoiler, but I feel like this came out in 1938, so not really a spoiler, but he takes all the credit. And it's like, She's still putting the work, you know, like that's and I think that's when we're the next we were talking about is another adaptation of this exact same story. So it's not like, you know, like a deviation or anything like that, like it's literally the same exact kind of adaptation, just a different, more upbeat, more lighthearted, I think, than this one. But there was no like moments of levity where it kind of seemed like you can understand why she would be falling in love with him. So in the moment when they came back from the ball and she told him off, it's kind of like this is like a a moment that's like more powerful for her because it's kind of like I'm the one who put in the work. I'm the one who was up until, you know, 3, 4 a.m. getting marbles put in my mouth, doing all of these things to speak properly for you. And then we get back and you literally just talk around me. You act like I'm not here. And I feel like that's probably how it is in society, though, then and probably even in some cases now, but where no matter how much work you put in, you're not recognized for that fact, and it was just kind of like, again, he's just taking full 
credit for everything yeah, that she's also much, doing. He continued to try to take credit too, even though she veered away from him, his whole, you know, him trying to be like, oh, I'm the one that told you this. I'm the one that told you that. Don't backtalk me, da, da, da. And then when she was like, oh, I'm not going to like have to put up with your stuff anymore. She disappeared for a bit. And then he was looking for her. Like he needed her more than she needed him in the end. But even then, he still tried to take credit. He was like, look at you. You're an independent woman now. Look at the mm-hmm. workout. Like, he still tried to take credit for everything that she did. Of Like, she went from one man who took credit to another because her dad also kind of was like, and I think this was more prevalent in the next movie of, like, this, again, the same adaptation. But her dad was kind of like, well, me not being there for you made you into who you are. So it's like, dang, you're taking credit for me for being, like, a deadbeat. And then she goes to the next man who does the same thing and literally purchases her for like five pounds or something like that from her dad. So it's truly like she has no agency at all because the fact that he can even think that I just bought you, so now you're my property, although she's her own person, kind of shows how much he didn't truly value her, although at the end it's supposed to be like he's in love with her. And again, I feel like it's supposed to be a two-way street, but I don't think it's conveyed well because there's no moment in between where you can believe that she was falling in love with him because there was like no lightheartedness, nothing like that going on to make you think, okay, I can see why she fell in love with him. For him, I can see it being like a narcissistic thing where it's like. Yeah, but that's why I don't think she fell in love with him, which we might disagree with. I think that she, I don't think there was any indication in the movie that she was in love with him. I think it was more so that she still kind of wanted some of his acceptance because he would constantly push her away at every point. Like, you said, take credit for everything that she did. Like, she put in the work herself. And, I mean, she probably respected this man because he took her off the street. And he did teach her, like, the as a linguist. as a, Yes, a linguist, right? Yeah, as a linguist. But I think that while she did put in the work and she acknowledged that, you know, I put in this work, I still like the person that helped me out to show me some respect because he didn't show her any respect. So I think it was more of a thing of respect than a thing of love. If you get what I'm saying, it's like... I think that we'll talk about the next movie. That one was more so a love interpretation of it. But I think in this one, I personally didn't get any interpretation that the two was in love with each other. I got the interpretation that he was in love with what he created and that, oh, I could turn a, what do they call it? A cockney flower girl to a duchess. And then she was like, oh, I could put myself in a higher social class by changing up the way I talk and the way I act and all that stuff. And I think she was happy with the results of it. And was like, I pretty much helped you look good in front of your colleagues, but you still don't give me any credit for the work that I did. In your mind, it's like, hey, I did everything. And I think that's what she was kind of looking for, more the respect than the love. Yeah. And I think the only reason, I think the only reason I disagree with you is maybe because I know that it's supposed to be a love story. And I think it could be interpreted again, like you're saying, I would agree with you that if we're supposed to believe that she fell in love with him, it doesn't make any sense because they didn't give us any moments of where we should have believed that they actually fell in love. Um, there was a, um article that I was reading and it had a statement that says, um, Shaw didn't set out to write a, forth- a frothy romantic confection. He wanted to advocate for women's suffrage and the end of the British class system. In the play... Stuffy professor Henry Higgins set himself a challenge to pass off Eliza Doolittle as a cockney seller, I mean, a cockney flower seller as a duchess. So when I say that, I don't really see it as like, I see it more of a, as a movie about class, class, class. more than class and 
you know, the patriarchy and all that stuff more than a play a player slash movie yeah. about love. Yeah, so I think that the romance aspect is more so what I think is like our interpretation of like these movies mm-hmm. in general. But I think the message that I got most from it, which is why I enjoyed it the most, was the idea that class is more so a social construct than an innate thing. It's like if you take someone from what's like a fancy neighborhood in New no, York, for West Side, from like the Hamptons, like you take a regular kid from the Hamptons, right, as a baby, and you put him into like the Marcy Projects, and you took that same another baby from Marcy Projects and put him in the Hamptons. The baby from Hamptons is probably going to grow up to be a little bit you know, more well-spoken. He'll have better opportunities. And then if you told them like, oh, we switched y'all places and you was mm-hmm. born here, they're not going to be, you're going to notice like, oh, it's not a thing that you're born with that makes you like, I guess, more proper. It's what or, you're taught. It's what you're taught it's what you're taught or what you have mm-hmm. access to. Like if someone like spoke like, you know, like a quote unquote hood booger, but they still had access to the like money of like their parents and stuff like that. It doesn't matter what the way they talk mm-hmm. is versus someone could have like a perfectly proper accent, but still not have the um, access to opportunities around them. And they could still end up in a worse mm-hmm. position. So I think this movie was trying to show that um, Eliza who got introduced to this stuff kind of later in her life, she was in her twenties versus being like a kid who grew up talking like this, like Henry was. She was still able to conform, become conform, and become someone who was seen as proper by standards of the people, mostly the men at that time, to the point where she got a man to want to marry her throughout the film. I'm, and I think that was one of Henry's. He was like, "Oh, I'm gonna get you like, oh, you're not gonna marry a street rat. You're gonna marry some rich man after I'm mm-hmm. done with you." And I think that's more so what the film was trying to convey is like, "Yo, you. It doesn't matter where you're born or who you are. This class system is." designed for certain people to prosper and some people for yeah, not Yeah, and I think another interesting aspect of it is, I, well, I agree with that. I also think part of it, though, thinking of it is like when she first, she was finally starting to speak right and then they brought people, invited people over for conversation, I guess, to kind of like do a dry run with her. And she started talking about her aunt who was like an alcoholic and she knew it. her aunt wasn't dead because she just like pours gin down her throat constantly. And it's kind of like, so she's speaking correctly, but she doesn't have the right stories to tell. So I think that's like another aspect of it of what's considered a classy or a socially acceptable story to share with people in conversation. And at what point also, because you remember at the party, his other student who was like his best student ever thought she was Bulgarian because she spoke English too properly. So I do think there's like an aspect of Definitely classism, but also if you grow up with it, you kind of learn where to drop certain things and when to be uh, more proper versus less proper. And when you're learning as an adult, it's kind of like that. all of that doesn't translate as well. But also kind of another thing was just like the money of it all, because once the dad got a little bit of money, although he was still, you know, from the same place and everything, all of a sudden the way he had to behave change and he he still had the cockney accent which is you know probably different than if a woman had a cockney accent again just the fact that he easily could sell her for five pounds shows how much they didn't value women and like who are you to sell me i'm like a person with my own agency but i also think it's interesting that the guy who fell in love with her although i'm sure it was probably because of how she looked and all that stuff but he fell in love with her despite her not knowing the normal social graces and everything and what proper conversation was, which is why I thought he was an interesting character that they didn't really explore too much, yeah. Yeah, 
it was definitely focused on the two primary characters. I think it definitely focused on Eliza more. I don't think that mm -hmm. Henry, his name is Henry, right? I don't think he Not went through a character all. arc in the film like Eliza did. And Eliza's character arc, I think, was more of one of about realization and that Henry was just using her. I mean, she kind of knew from the beginning mm -hmm. he was trying to use her. But I think in the end, when she was like, kind of like, yo, give me some credit. And he did not give her credit to the very end. Mm -hmm. She was like, I bet. Like, I would like to see like a movie. I mean, not a sequel, but like just to know what happened after that conversation. But I think it was a yeah. good place to end. And I do want to get into the next film a little bit because there's like things I want to make compare and contrast. About what I did like about this movie that I didn't really like that what My Fair Lady yeah. did as much. And we can get into My Fair Lady. I will say before we get into My Fair Lady, one of the things... Actually, I'll read the synopsis and then I'll mention it. So let's get into My Fair Lady, which is a movie that came out in 1964. And the synopsis is, in this beloved musical, pompous phonetics professor Henry Higgins, played by Rex Harrison, is so sure of his abilities that he takes it upon himself to transform a cockney working-class girl into someone who can pass for a cultured member of high society. His subject turns out to be the lovely Eliza Doolittle, played by Aud Audrey Hepburn, who agrees to speech lessons to improve her job prospects. Higgins and Eliza clash and then form an unlikely bond. One is threatened by an aristocratic su suitor played by Jeremy Brett. This movie was directed by George Cooker. And for the film scores, again, kind of got to take it with a grain of salt just because it came out in 1964 and it's probably a combination of old and new critiques, but it has a 95% on Metacritic based off of 41 critic reviews and the 7.7 .7 user score. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 95% critical review and 90% audience score. This movie won the Academy Award for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Art Director Color, Best Cinematographer Color, Best Costume Design Color, Best Scoring of Music Adaptation or Treatment, and Best Sound. It was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Screenplay Adapted. So this movie was clearly a hit in 1964. Yeah. I mean, it had all the makings of a hit. You had a lot of color. You had dancing musicals. You was just, it was a, made by, I'm guessing, a studio. It had O.G. Hepburn. I don't know if the guy was a big actor or not back then, but I'm pretty sure he was. It was definitely like one of those movies that I could see why it did well in 64. I think, I think that it would be a little bit more criticized now if it came out. Yeah, I could. I can see that. I think, yeah, big studio movies, lots of color. I do think, like, some of the musical scenes were, like, very effective. So, like, the scene when they were at the yeah, races the in the for the first role. time, and they were all in the yeah, way, and yeah. they were just standing like that. I thought that was, like, a cool scene. I do agree. I think that this movie can be read more as a love story, again, because it introduced more moments of levity between Professor Higgins and Eliza, whereas in the first movie, just Pygmalion, there, were the, there weren't those moments of levity, so it's kind of harder to read it that way. I think that in this movie, although I liked Eliza, I think that the one in the 1938 version had, like, more fire or something behind her. This one, she had, like, her moment where she had her song talking about she was going to be, like, owned by any man or anything like that, which is, like, not something you suspect in a movie in 1964. This was, like, the era where they were just, yeah. like, slapping it literally said, I knew just because. He's like, so, I knew you would hit me at some point, like, multiple times. Yeah. But this one, this is just definitely just like a more this upbeat version of, it's kind of like they saw the story yeah. and said, I can take this story and make it into a musical and make it more fun. 
and kind of keep like that bare bones aspect of yeah. it versus the 1938 one, which was Vers- more of a straight drama version. That's why I said. That's why I said I think the 1938 version was a mm-hmm. little bit more true to the original, based on what I read, of course. That I know that um, the original Greek play was a love story. And it was not a play. The original Greek myth was a love story. But I think, like, based on what Brian Sherrill was going for as far as, like, a movie about class and about women's suffrage, I think this movie kind of came up short in that because it romanticized mm-hmm. a little bit of the struggle a little bit too mm-hmm. much. Like, I think even from the beginning, Audrey Hepburn was still Prestige. made to look a little bit more, like, pristine with the old school, you know, the Hollywood lighting for women where it was, like, she has to look amazing in every light. Versus the mm-hmm. original where she really looked like she was from the gutter. And I think in this movie, too many of the moments was like, this man's a jerk. But then he was a little bit less of a jerk than in the original. Like, I did not like that because I think that it was supposed to show him as the villain because he's more so representative of what men back then thought of women. How they were only really able to be mm-hmm. great when they had a hand in their creation. And I think in this film, it was more so a little bit too like, oh, men are going to change too. Because he actually fell in love with her in the end and she fell in love with him. Even though the age difference was like 40 years, that was something that didn't sit well with me at, at the time too. Because it was just like, okay, this feels a little bit manipulative because mm-hmm. I think she was supposed to be 21 in the play or in the movie and he was supposed to probably be in his 40s. So it felt a little bit manip- manipulative in that sense. But I think that the original did a better job at discussing or not even like straightforward discussing, but portraying the themes of the original play based on what I read. Because I think in this film, they could have, it could have been a little bit grittier in portraying such a serious theme. Because I think they try to make it more so like 1960s family fun movie where they go out and they sing and they dance. But there's this underlying message about women's empowerment. But I think that they put the other stuff above the, yeah, the original message like of the film. The adaptation aspect starts to come in more. And I think this one's probably a little bit harder to divorce from it because... They have like the same names of the, as the characters in the original play and everything. But it's clear that or it seems that they took more of the lightheartedness and just kind of like the fun, oh, take a Cockney girl and make her, you know, speak more proper and everything. And saying speak more proper is not proper, but, but make her speak with, you know, this more high class accent and introduce her to society. And they kept... They kept some of the same beats. So they had this story with, again, the aunt and the gin, but it was set, again, at the races and everything. And then you introduce the music. And to me, the music was, like, semi-memorable, which kind of makes it harder. I think I think I remember the song from the races. I remember the song when they were up till 2 a.m. And that's that's kind of where I started to really think about the fact that they're going for a different vibe is when she was, like, dancing with him and having fun. Although it was still like two in the morning, it wasn't like he was like, stay awake. And they had the headache scene, but it it didn't read as much of, he's as much of a jerk. Yeah. I mean, he was still, she swallowed a marble, he put another one in her mouth, but that's kind of still, you know, a little sus. But it did feel, again, just more lighthearted overall. And again, I think that just like, so a couple of the big scenes that were the same is when they came back from the party and, you have that whole discussion around Eliza. In this one, I think she read more sad than, like, defiant and angry. And I think defiant and angry fits better because it's, like, you need more fire 
behind that. And I like Audrey Hepburn as an actress, but I think there's kind of a reason that she's the only one that wasn't nominated for everything when everyone else was. Is because I think this was kind of like a weaker performance, although she was so good. It just... Or if I watched My Fair Lady first. But I think that just based on like the kind of content I like and what I kind of look for in like stories and movies and stuff like that, the original Pygmalion was very like relevant to the times that we live in. And that was shocking to me because I remember I told you like, this movie's kind of boring. I can't really get through it. But I was still at the very beginning. So I kind of judged the book by its cover before I got to finish. So by the time I finished the movie, I was like, oh, wow, that was a really great film. And I started like watching videos and stuff on it. But My Fair Lady was more so like, okay, these are the same beats except dragged out a lot more. So I was like, okay, I want to just get through this versus actually sitting there to enjoy the content that I was watching. Mm-hmm. And what do you think of the, again, the musical aspect of it? And then I, I kind of tuned out of the music. Mm-hmm. Like music, like I like musicals, but I think I like certain kind of music in musicals, like the more Disney kind of music that is like easy to sing along to when you remember it. Like you watch a YouTube video with the wall bouncing on a lyric, like stuff like that. I feel like this movie wasn't really music that I'm like, sitting there like, oh, I'm going to remember this song down the line. It was more so like, okay, here comes the musical note that completely takes away from the aspects that I liked in the original. Because mm-hmm. okay. it felt like adding music to it just made it even more whimsical and lighthearted than it already was. Mm-hmm. And it was already whimsical and lighthearted based on like the, the costume design and the uh, set design, all this other stuff. Well, the original being in black and white, I mean, black and white is going to make anything look gritty. Mm-hmm. So it just made that already look gritty. And even when she mm-hmm. was in a the original square where she was like selling flowers and stuff like that. It still looked like a place that wasn't too bad. While the original was like, I need to put on my mask and make sure I don't touch anything. Mm -hmm. Like it looked dirty. So I think that was like a big difference that I contrast that I, I see the quality of the film. Mm -hmm. I just don't like the content as much because I seen the original first and I think it hits the themes that I read the play was trying to do a little bit better. And I also think again, for the purpose of what they were going for, Casting someone like Audrey Hepburn worked, but I feel like she was probably already a well-known actress at that time. She was, like, you know, known for being really beautiful and all that stuff. So trying to, like, dirty her up doesn't really work because she still looks like Audrey Hepburn. So I feel like that's also a big part of it. Yeah. Because you don't want to ruin their appeal for future movies. But, I mean, personally, Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it. Again, I think it's just dependent on what you were looking for out of it. If you're looking, again, for that more gritty nature, then Pygmalion is probably more for you if you want to see more of a drama about class and kind of forcing some, or not forcing, she she did go on her own yeah, by, by choice. choice. But I feel like after you start to change, that threat of going back to what was before is probably also a difficult choice to make. So it's like, okay, keep going at this, although it sucks, or go back to the street and be how you were before. So it's kind of like that, I don't know, it feels like it's still a power imbalance. And I agree that making him so much older in My Fair Lady doesn't help either. And I kind of, at the end of the movie, I was kind of actually not sure, more so in this one, if she was supposed to be in love with him or not, because there was a point where I think she said, and I don't know if it's just supposed to be like a cute back and forth or whatever, but there was a point where she mentioned, he was like, I can give you money for this or you can go off and marry your other suitor or even marry the other professor that w- or the the other guy who was there as a part of the bet. Mm-hmm. And she was like, it's not about love. It's not about this. It's about something. So I don't really know if she was supposed to be in love with him. I do think he was supposed to be in love with her. 
So I think in both adaptations, it's kind it of could like, be a question. It could be a question, and it's, to me, I think even more so in this one. And I don't know if that's my own bias coming in because she was supposed to be so young, and he clearly was much older. Although Audrey Hepburn was thirty-five in this, she was playing a twenty-one-year-old. So it's kind of like I think yeah. this one I was a little bit more clear because of all the events that led up to the, the yeah. ending. Plus, in the ending of this movie wasn't the ending of the last movie. So in this movie, he was listening to the her original Cockney accent on the recorder. Yeah. And she walks in, and then he looks at her, she looks at him, and it's kind of like a sweet understanding that's where it ends. In mm-hmm. the original film, they got into another argument after that, and then he's like, go and get me my slippers, something like that. Like, he says something offensive to her in the end, and that's mm-hmm. how it ends. I'm like, yeah. That one was a little bit more clear-cut into me that maybe they're not in love, or she doesn't love him, but I think it ended on a more positive note. In, in the original, because he just could, like, it was kind of like that. I'm going to get the last word in. I'm going to make sure it's offensive. And that's what he did in yeah. the original one. And I feel like in this one, again, going back to that idea of what was he in love was, with who he made her to be? Yeah. I think they try to, like, undercut that and say, no, it wasn't just who he made her to be. It was her by having him hear her Cockney accent and him thinking fondly of it as opposed to him being like, ugh, yeah. that Cockney accent. It's kind of like, oh, man, this is the woman that I love and she's gone now and clearly she came back and the fact that they learned things or he she learned things about him because she was like he was like he wanted his coffee in the morning but no one knew how to make it except for her so it's kind of like they grew and developed this relationship while she was becoming you know more refined or Or he just where his paperwork was and all that Mm -hmm. stuff in the original he just saw her as an assistant at a point Mm -hmm. it was like because when he was listening to her cockney accent it wasn't more so like, oh, this is the woman I love. I love, well, I think he fell in love with the creation, but there was points in the movie where he heard other people talking in their slang, and he was just impressed by slang more so from like a way someone is impressed by watching like a child do something or a pet do something. It wasn't like an actual appreciation of the person. It was more so like, oh, look how improper this person is talking. I want to study you like an animal. Like, yeah. I think he was more so impressed by like, oh, look how far she came and where I brought her more so than like oh this is the person i fell in love with look how beautiful she sounds that's why he continued to be demeaning to her while in the original the new one i think the framing is more so he was appreciative of her as a woman to the point where it didn't matter how she talked it was just her at the end of the day Mm -hmm. and i think one last interesting fact not about their relationship is in this one versus the last one is how the relationship with the father ended I think in the last one, in Pygmalion, she was invited to go to his wedding and everything. So it kind of seemed like they were on the mend. In this one, it seemed like they met again and kind of agreed to kind of just be separate. And the father, he still looked, you know, like he was poor and everything. But the fact that he had money, he said, made his life difficult, which is kind of like an... Yeah, which is an interesting fact because, again, it's made out to seem like, you know, money... Everybody said money can't buy happiness, but it's supposed to be like, okay, you having a little bit of money makes you a little bit happier because you're not struggling. Yeah. But for him, truly, it was kind of like, I was free to do whatever, go wherever, do whatever, whatever before. And now I have money and I have to find a wife and I have to find all these things. Now and now he had obligations money. because of the money that he didn't have before. So I just thought that was like an interesting thing to throw in there of this like, man, again, he was a trash dad, but he still was kind of like being poor to him was freeing more so than having those obligations that he had once he got the money, but he thought he wanted the money before he, and so he was like just celebrating his last night as a bachelor and all of that stuff. 
which was a fun little song. I think that was like one of the songs I was actually like, I'm enjoying this. Yeah. But any final thoughts before we go on to the next yeah, movie? Yeah, I mean, we kind of just went back and forth between Big Million and My Fair Lady because, you know, they're very similar movies very to the point where... More one-to-one than yeah, the rest of like them. Yeah, I said, I definitely understand the differences that were made in the movies. The story, it's funny how the story beats can be so similar, but you could come out with a totally different outcome and opinion based on the two movies, just based on like changing the color, changing the costumes, changing mm-hmm. certain arcs. And I think that's kind of what I enjoyed about watching them both back to back. But that being said, My Fair Lady is 30 minutes too long. They need to cut that movie down by a lot. <laughs> I don't know why that movie is so long. Get a time travel machine. Yeah. Be like... <laughs> In the editing booth, go back and just cut out a few scenes. Yeah. It's Pretty Woman, which came out in 1990. The synopsis reads In this modern update on Cinderella, don't, don't know where they got Cinderella from, but in this modern update on Cinderella, a prostitute and a wealthy businessman fall hard for one another, forming an unlikely pair. While on a business trip in LA, Edward, played by Richard Gere, who makes a living buying and breaking up co- companies, picks up a hooker. Vivian, played by Julia Roberts, on a lark. After Edward hires Vivian to stay with him for the weekend, the two, gets close, the two get closer, only to discover there are significant hurdles to overcome as they try to bridge the gap between their very different worlds. This movie was directed by Gary Marshall, and for the film scores, it has a 51% on Metacritic for the critical score and 8.8 user score. In Orion Tomatoes, it has a 64% critical score and a 68% audience score. So, Jabari, what did you think of Pretty Woman? I didn't look at the scores before I finished the movie. So when it was over, I typed in Pretty Woman mm-hmm. Oscars, and then I saw that I saw that had a 68%. I was like, oh, oh wow. <laughs> Good movie, because I really liked um, what was his name? Richard Gere's character. Like, I thought he was a Richard really Gere. well-written character, because he seemed to be, like, Kind of a man ahead of his time, in a way. Where you know how guys kind of had, like, I think mm-hmm. they do from Seinfeld. He kind of played the more traditional guy who, how he treats a woman who's in the sex industry. While Richard Gere was kind of like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to judge you based on what you do. I'm going to treat you based on who you are. And he kind of treated her like, as he treated her really kindly as a person. Only as a person. So... That kind of made me respect him as a person, and you kind of wanted to learn more about him. And then as you got to learn more about him, you're like, oh, you went through this, you went through that, and you still found a way to treat people kind on the other side. Plus, Julia Roberts, I think him and her played off each other really well. To be funny, it's another big age difference. I think she was 23 when the movie came out or something like that, and he was in his 40s. So it was another movie of like an mm-hmm. older man kind of grooming a young, younger woman. Yeah. But excluding that, aspect i think that the two of them played off each other really well treated her really well she did a good job at opening up and revealing different aspects of her character just and the movie did a good job at not talking down on the sex industry it wasn't like oh you're a hooker you're bad it was more so like okay i understand how certain people lead Mm -hmm. lead them into this circumstance but i'm not going to judge you for that and we're not going to from like a writer standpoint we're not going to judge women in this industry it's more so like, okay, you are doing this job, but that doesn't automatically make you a bad person. So I appreciated those aspects of the movie. And I really enjoyed it. Like, I thought it was a really good film. Yeah, I I enjoyed this one, too. I no, did yeah, not same. see the Cinderella aspect of it that the synopsis mentioned. I definitely see more of that, like, the Pygmalion-esque nature of it. I agree. I think both of their characters 
I do kind of wish you got to learn a little bit more about Vivian, but I do agree that both of their characters, you know, were treated with respect and you kind of got to see a little bit of both of who they were. And although Vivian was a prostitute, she wasn't just like a tool to be used. And I feel like they emphasized that with that scene with the guy from Seinfeld when he tried to assault her just because he was like, you're a prostitute, so you should be down for anything. And she's like, no, I have my own agency. I have my, you know, I can say yes or no to whatever I choose to. And I'm saying, choosing to say no to you. And he didn't take no for an answer. So I feel like that kind of is a little bit more progressive than I think probably you saw in a lot of other things in the 90s with how prostitutes were probably treated in film. And then even just, I do think there's like a lot to say Again, about class, because yeah, you can see how she got treated like that, the whole time. in certain stores by the t- hotel staff. I think it was nice the way they ended up developing <laughs> her relationship with the manager, although he first dismissed her. White, magical Negro. Yeah. Like, he always plays that role of the guy who's kind of just like mythical and has mm-hmm. all the good advice in the world and all the movies yeah. that he's in. It could be a, a bit to say. I mean, again, all of these have a bit to say about capitalism and how you can go about buying respect. Like, I just watched a YouTube video recently and actually had nothing to do with this. I was just watching a YouTube video about money or something like then like, shopping. And it specifically mentioned the scene. So when she first goes into the um, store and she still has on her outfit from the night before, which was, like, a little dress. You've probably seen it. I think it's, like, a really popular Halloween costume where the uh-huh, with the wig and the dress with the cutouts. She goes into a store... And the lady's like, I don't think you can afford to shop here or whatever. She was really rude to her. We really don't know what anyone can afford, honestly. But she comes back in the next day and she was like, you guys work off commission? Big mistake. Huge. Huge. And then she leaves. And the video pointed out that she shouldn't have to change her outward appearance for her to get that respect like now it's supposed to be like a big like you go girl moment like this is a serve but it's only they're respecting her now because she looks more yeah she looks more I guess traditional more classy than she did the day before but it's like stability politics it's like if you're a person who is a consumer in the free market why do you also have to have a level of respectability yeah to shop it's like if you go there in a garbage bag but you have the ability to afford the items there. Mm-hmm. Why does that matter? It it's like, of course, there's levels of like, I guess, quote unquote, decency that you should have in a certain extent. Like if you're in there like bare naked, of course, they're going to be like, oh, put something on. Or if you're like acting a fool, like I'm about this, I'm about this. I'm about... Yeah, like tone it down. Yeah, they but actually there's buy like, it. Yeah. I'm just saying like if they're yelling and they're acting a fool and they're like, you know, how some people might be like jumping on counters. Like there's, of course, there's some level of decency you have to have as a person in a society. But that should not be determined based on the outfit that you're wearing. That you're and, wearing and people should not judge you based on that. It's, it's all about whether or not you could afford what's in the store. And it's, yeah, it's kind of similar to how certain... Re- and I mean, these tend to be, not to get into like too much about race or anything like that, but these tend to be more racially motivated. It sometimes feels like when you'll see restaurants where they'll be like, no hats, no sneakers, no do-rags, no this, no... And it was like... My money is just as green as the person who's wearing a business suit. More if it didn't specifically exclude things that black people were into. Or people like say it was like racism didn't exist. And there was like a store that was like, oh, we only like um, bow ties and 
people to be or dressed up. It's like, okay, cool. But everything in the society is so like mm -hmm. layered that you just can't look past the fact that it's like, okay, I understand that you said no jeans, no hoodies, but then you had a no do-rags. Like, you know, who mm -hmm. wears do-rags? Like, you don't got to like, just no say what you really want to say. Yeah. It's like yeah, the whole, exactly. again, like, this is kind of very away from the movie, but the whole bonnet thing about how you shouldn't wear bonnets in public. And it's like, I'm going on a plane and I'm probably going to go to sleep. Why does my hair have to be laid at every moment of the day? Yeah. Or my edges have to be, you know, brushed and this and that in order for me to be respected by society. Like, you shouldn't always have to be on 100 or, yeah. you know, dressed to the nines just to get respect. You should be able to walk into a store. And again, you know, there's certain, obviously certain places where you might dress a little bit different than others, but yeah. you should, if I'm going to Walmart, yeah. if I'm going here, I'm, why am I dressing up? And I feel like it's like, again, for if you're not as wealthy or in this case, if you're like black or something, then you have to always be conscious of that. And I think that in this movie, all that was really oh. good, it kind of did like fail on that point because she only got respect yeah, after which she was is able like, to... I was saying, I mean, you're kind of veering away from the movie yeah, a little so bit, like, but I think the movie brings back, up yeah. conversations about, you know, race, not race, but like societal, I mean, you got to say race because race is tied to class in this country. Mm -hmm. But like, say there's a restaurant that sells like $500 steaks, right? And their policy is business casual to business only. Is that a problem if they're like, hey, we want you to dress a certain way in order to come to this restaurant? Because like, I could somewhat understand it. Like if you want people to only dress up nice and y'all got violins, you got a piano and stuff like that. I can somewhat understand it, but then at the same time, it's like, I think there's assumptions made about who mm -hmm. can afford that. It's like, not everyone can afford a suit. And then if you do, like, say you're like, it's Valentine's Day, you saved up money to take your, your boyfriend or girlfriend there, and you get like a pretty cheap suit. You're still going to get eyes looked at you. You might get a harder time than someone who's there like, in a nicer Dolce & Gabbana suit. Like if you just got on like a suit from men's warehouse yeah you might have a little bit of rougher time so like i kind of understand those kind of establishments that want to be quote-unquote high-end but at the same time i think there's too much it's too much class it's classism but then there's other layers of classism that are tied to racism because you know like how you have yacht clubs and stuff like that where it's like people of a certain class because i know people like to group themselves together with people similar to them and it's like i could understand mm -hmm. the problem in that but i think the problem becomes when it's exclusionary to other people outside it's like, okay, if there's a membership mm -hmm. that says this yacht club is $1,000 and then there's a new person that's like, say they won the lottery and they're like, oh, I'm going to join the yacht club. They're going to find other ways to exclude them because they're not, their green is not the same as other people's green. Like they want the old money. They don't want the new money to yeah. like come in and change it's the culture. The same as like old, old back in the day. I mean, I'm sure there's still some now, but like older country yeah. clubs and how they didn't want like black people or Jewish people or certain yeah. kinds. Like They'll find other reasons. Like blue bloods. Yeah. So they'll find a way to discriminate. And that's against what I was saying. You. Like it's that's where it becomes a thing of exclusionary based on other reasons outside of finance. Because it's yeah. like if the and store was just like, oh, like maybe like some stores are like, oh, you gotta pay a hundred dollars just to look around. It's like that's still exclusionary. Yeah. But that yeah. cuts it off yeah. at a financial point. While in this movie, they looked at her. She had the money. She had she literally she said, said I, I have, have the money. money. They're like, like, Your oh, money's it's not probably good too here. expensive yeah. for you. And I'm and she's like if I'm saying I have the money, then don't tell me it's too expensive for me. Tell me the price, and then I can decide if it's, it's too expensive, expensive for me, her, right? Like, like, I'm sure what, what, like, I mean, and not to say there's anything wrong with re retail workers. But it's still workers, weird when one like, person, like, you work at a store, but you're not benefiting from the 
this store excluding other people. It's like you're a worker here. Like, yeah, get your money. And like she said, you work, yeah, you work on commission. Like, like you're commission. making money off the I, stuff you sell. Get your money off of, or make your money off of whatever. But it's again just a way to discriminate against her. And even I think the problem is like even as she started to dress nicer because he threw money at that other store and let her buy whatever. The problem is then that later on when her friend even comes to visit, they treat her friend yeah. like crap. So it's kind of like they're not truly accepting of people who are in a lower class than them, finger quotes there. And but A lot um, of his um, yeah. ways of getting her was more so grand gestures than anything. It's yeah. like, oh, I didn't know what you want to eat. So I got you everything on the menu. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. you got to relax a little bit. Like, we get it that you're rich. Yeah. And he's supposed to be like the prince charming to her and stuff like that. But there was still a lot of like, you're buying her. For, well, all right. What I didn't like about it is that I didn't, I feel like his personality was still cool enough where I could see why she liked him. But in mm-hmm. other aspects, it felt like he was kind of buying her affection in order to win her over. But I think the ending of the movie was trying to show her that you don't need to do that. Like, you don't have to like, yeah. offer, like he offered her an apartment that she don't got to pay rent for. She could just live in. She's like, this is not my idea of like what a fairy tale is. She's like, yeah, because yeah. it's kind of like you get married, but you're going to come just see your side prostitute because you're paying yeah. me still. And I think it's like also an interesting power imbalance because it'll be, diff- it'll be different if you like got her for the night and like didn't do anything with her. He was sleeping with her throughout yeah. this entire thing. And I guess the whole romantic gesture in this was supposed to be that she doesn't kiss him and she only kisses yeah. him when she's finally like, I love you or I really like you now, so I'll kiss you. But it's still kind of like, that's a weird imbalance to have where it's like you're still paying for her, not just her company, but for her to sleep with you and everything. Although he, again, obviously treated her with more respect than other people do at the end of the day. Until the very end, he still saw her as yeah. a prostitute. Because they only knew each other for a week, so that love story progressed really, mm-hmm. really fast. Really, but I feel movies like that's just kind of... Yeah. Movies in general, like that's. Have, I don't know if you ever seen again. Getting a little off topic, How to Lose a Guy in Ten no, Days. I hated that movie because I'm like, in ten days, that's not long enough to like fall in love, mess it up. Like that's ten days. Like unless you're literally spending every moment of yeah. every day with each other, it doesn't make sense. But I feel like that's yeah, not they all kind of are. I mean, it were. happens sometimes in real life. You see people so, who fall in. They fall more so fall in love with the idea of love more so than actual loving of the love, person. Yeah, I don't think it's possible to fall in love with a person or the idea yeah. of the person because. Yeah, 10 days is, like, not long enough to actually know a person for Yeah, but all really in all, are. I did really enjoy this um, film. I mean, of course, it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. It's a flawed movie in certain aspects. Like, we talked about the message of capitalism and stuff like that. And, like, you said, did he go back to that same store that kicked her out, or they went to a different store? All right, that's what they I went to a different store. Because I kind of did. So, you know, I was waiting for them to go back there so he could, like, tell them off or something. He went back, and she said that okay. big mistake huge. Yeah. That was the same store. Which is where the I saw the video that was talking about, like, this is not a girl boss, you know, win moment because it's kind of like the only reason I want to sell to you now is because you are socially acceptable. And that's a whole nother thing, the, the way whole you... concept of girl boss. I mean, we could talk about that and we could actually yeah, do some girl boss movies one day because there was like a whole concept of the girl boss mentality is very it's patriarchal, patriarchal in a it's sense. It's also very, again, capitalistic where it's like, you have to get yeah. money and you have to, again, kind of be in a traditional, how a traditional man would kind of be. I feel like Devil Wears Prada is yeah. almost. But I. That's yeah. kind of very girl. Oh, that's the exact movie that came to my mind is like yeah. one thing in Girl Boss. Because she pretty much was 
acting like the, on, in order to be like I understand the concept is in order to be with but the you know men, what you I liked about and again like men, we're, we're veering off topic of Pretty Woman but I'll just get this yeah. point out and then we can go back to Pretty Woman what I like about Devil Wear Prada is that it doesn't feel like I feel like the movie started off trying to demonize like being feminine and her being yeah. like oh I don't care about fashion I don't care about this and it's like you can care about both you can you don't have to like hate this in order to succeed in your film not your film, sorry, in your field. Movie's kind of Pygmalion in a way, if you think about it, because she changes her whole image and stuff over time. Stuff over time in order to um fit the society that she's in. But back to um Pretty Woman, like I said, I, I kind of concluded a little bit on mm -hmm. it. I think that it was a good film that was flawed, but I really did enjoy sitting there watching it. Like, I would watch it again at some point if it came, came on TV or whatever. And see why it's one of those long-standing rom-coms from that era of rom-coms. It's good. It has rewatchability. And I think it's overall an interesting, pretty interesting movie. I do still think it's funny that you looked up what it was nominated for, but yeah, I, <laughs> I overall, I think I enjoyed it. I think I it got an MTV like, award or something like that. I forget what it was. Chemistry or something like that. But yeah, I think this is, a, again, a more romantic take on that million trope and it doesn't really address the capitalism at all like I think me and you see it but it doesn't address it as much as or it addresses it in a more romanticized way as opposed to like this is something we should be critical of most they were critical of it was like you're gonna buy this poor old man's company no, it's like I don't care about your billionaire yeah. versus billionaire few few it's like okay I don't this is not what I see cap like a a critique mm -hmm. of capitalism as like, is like, oh, if you're a good person, you won't buy my company. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to buy your company. Like, oh, We're two work rich together. men getting richer while it, the, her uh, friend still has to. I mean, if her friend cho chooses, you know, to stay in her job, then that's fine. But like her friend is still, you know, a prostitute. And he's the only thing he offered to do before his grand rom romantic gesture is like, okay, I'll pay you and you'll be only mine as opposed to you know, you having to work on the streets or whatever. And she, I'm glad that at least in the end, she was like, this is not, this is not romantic. Like, you know, you're, the fact that her, his friend was just like, let me just ha have my way with her because I don't respect her, which I think, again, was probably, again, the most critical aspect of how she was viewed in society and how they combated that. And the only reason, like, I wonder if it was even combated is because it's supposed to be a romance. Like, otherwise, would it have just kind of been, like, other movies where, you know, or even, like, TV shows where it's just, like, if you're going to have a character who's a prostitute, it's just, like, a dead prostitute or someone who's getting beat up or something like that, as opposed to, like, a person. But, yeah, with that, we can get into the next movie, which is She's All That, which came out in 1999. And the synopsis is High School Hotshot Zach... Siller, played by Freddie Prince Jr., is the envy of his peers, but his popularity declines sharply when his cheerleader girlfriend, Taylor, played by Jodie Lynn O'Keefe, leaves him for a sleazy reality television star, played by Matthew Lillar. Desperate to revive his fading reputation, Tyler agrees to a seemingly impossible challenge. He has six weeks to gain the trust of <laughs> nerdy outcasts. Lainey Boggs, played by Rachel Lee Cook, and help her to become the school's next prom queen. This movie was directed by Robert Iscove, or Iscove, 
The film score is on Metacritic. It has a 51% critical score and an 8.6 user score. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 40% critic score and a 55% audience score. What do you think of this movie? Of not another teen movie, then I do this movie. So I went, I, then I went back to watch the, I was like, okay, maybe I wasn't like paying attention enough in this movie. So I went back and watched the end of this movie. And I was like, not another teen movie is better than this movie. Like it, it's a parody, but this feels like a parody of not another teen movie. Like this movie was just, I mean, I know it's supposed to like, sometimes with these movies, you can't be too like, oh, this movie's terrible. The writing wasn't good. The cinematography was off. I don't know if it was intentionally trying to be cheesy based on the movie, like the time it came out. Like you had a lot of those cheesy 90s shows and 90s movies where it's like, you know, a bad boy gets good girl. They fall in love and change each other. Like it was kind of one of those movies. I mean, he wasn't a bad boy. Like he was a nice person in the end. But it kind of felt like one of those tropes of like them, he, him taking her and trying to turn her popular in order to win his agenda. But in the end, he stopped caring about what everyone else thinks and falls in love with her. And I, this movie just like, I'm thinking really hard about things to say about it because there mm -hmm. wasn't much there to dive into. Like there's not much theme. There's not a lot of messages. There's nothing I could really like, I guess, be yourself. Like that's the most I could think about for this movie is like the yeah. messages to be yourself. Like it's very basic. Like there's not a lot of like movie to dive into here because it's so... Written just for like, it felt like it was written by a group of people who like aren't teenagers, but think teenagers will like this. So we're going to write it in order to sell tickets to teenagers on date nights. Like, like boardroom movies. It's like, okay, so teenagers like this actor. They like this actress and teenagers want to see the two lead characters fall in love. And we're going to get the unattractive, like kind of like when we talk about Twilight, it's like the mm -hmm. girl, the relatable girl to be with the guy who the girls crush on. And it's just not a lot there. Like, it's just kind of corny. It did make <laughs> me want to watch the Scooby-Doo movie again. Or I'm not going to lie. Movie. Like, every character in this was from the Scooby-Doo movie. I, so I did want to watch the Scooby-Doo movie again. Movie. And again, not in, like, the critical lens. Like, I, I'm a sucker for, like, teen movies. And this one just isn't good. And again, it's just to kind of bring it back to that whole Pygmalion thing. It had everything that those movies have. So... You have a guy trying to change a girl. You have the makeover. You have the fact that she's lower class. And it's not really lower class. It's just his dad went to Duke and probably is a businessman. And her dad is like a pool man who is a businessman. Yeah, it's just a business different man. kind of businessman. But it's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, you're lesser because your dad's a pool. But he owns so whatever. It's just one thing that they added that I don't like is like a level of, a level of deception. But I feel like that was just teen movies back then where it's just like, you have to have some sort of secret, some sort of thing that's going to tear them apart. Like, in the other three movies, it was very blatant that I'm doing this, you know, I'm tr either in Pretty Woman, who wasn't really trying, or he was trying to change her, but it was kind of like, I'm doing this for this purpose, just be my date for these, this next week, I'll buy you clothes, whatever. And just to make you, and it wasn't like he was trying to change her, like, speech patterns or anything like that he was just trying to change her kind of outward appearance and then maybe she learned how to use like utensils and stuff like salad fork plate fork not just like fork and a knife she know how to, you know use those and then 
in My Fair Lady, it was clearly, you know, My Fair Lady and Pygmalion was clearly, he was trying to change her speech pattern and make her seem more high class. In this one, he was straight up just trying to deceive yeah. her for a bet. And I don't, I didn't like that aspect of it. And then, oh man, I mean, again, you watch not another team movie, so they talk about this in there. Just the whole makeover, like the next movie we talk about is going to have a makeover scene too. And I feel like that one was like way more effective, although we can get into why some of those makeover scenes are a little problematic, but pretty much like, you know, straight your hair and, you know, make you more like a Eurocentric kind of beauty standard than you're good for already pretty yeah. actresses. So it's kind of like, you already know that it's not like trolls that they're picking or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. When they did Exa- the makeup like, on this oh one, Oh my God, they gave her like two, I was like two like extra pieces of hair in the middle to give her the a unibrow quote like yeah. you know finger quotes unibrow and she didn't really have one and glasses and overalls and they put like a few extra extensions on yeah. her that they took out to make it seem like she got a haircut and then they changed her dress took off her glasses it was like teen party dress just like a regular yeah it was a red dress because yeah. she had the same a similar dress to the other girl and the other girl started being mean to her the one the thing party. i do remember from this though was is like, you don't belong like that. here the song from the scene, I feel like that yeah. resonated, well, not resonated, but I remember that from seeing the movie before more than I remember the actual, like, makeover. I'm just like, this is so, it's so bad. And again, it's just because they pick a conventionally attractive actress, put glasses on her, put, like, baggy clothes on her, and then say, oh, you're going to have the hardest time in the world. You're going to make her hot. You're going to make, I'm just like, Look at the actress. Like, she's just a normal-looking actress, and you're acting like this is, like... I was like, we're yeah, going to turn you like, into a star. It was like, you're already someone that's unattractive, well, someone that's already attractive. And you're just... So you're just... Making them fit the, what society standards yeah. of... Not even, like, beauty of just, like, what's socially acceptable clothing. That's literally yeah. it. It'd be like and, if Queer Eye only worked with guys that they already seen as attractive, so they just change the clothes. You're like, oh, my God, yeah. In, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's just not great. But... Yeah, I mean, this whole movie is, it was just bad, like yeah, you said. It was and then just not a great film. The B-plot of the girlfriend and her real-world boyfriend. One, I feel like he was a grown man, so it was just kind of yeah. weird that he was just dating a high schooler. And I guess she's supposed to be 18, but, like, he was dating a high schooler and everyone was just kind of okay with it. Like, no red flags were raised by anyone. Yeah, well, that was pretty real back then, though. In 1999? Like, a lot of people would ignore I guess, that's true. teenage As girls was, dating grown Seinfeld men. Seinfeld definitely was picking up his high school girlfriend from high school. Yeah, it wasn't like, I think it was like 80s, late 80s, though, not like late 90s. But yeah, he was like 39. He would like go to her high school and pick her up after school. Yeah, but sadly, that was not seen as like, like, yeah, even like now it's problematic. But in areas where people aren't as concerned about the populace, they still, things like that still mm-hmm. go on. I mean, they so still go on in bigger states. It's just not as talked yeah. about. Well, that's what I mean. I'm, when I would say people that like, and certain like demographics mm-hmm. and stuff like that, pe- things like that still do go on, but no one's gonna look into it because they don't yeah. care about those populations. Yeah. So yeah, so that was kind of so. like a, a creepy sub factor. And I mean, maybe he's even though it's no way I was say maybe he's supposed to be like twenty one or twenty two, but even still, you shouldn't be dating a high schooler at that age. Like you should fully be old. done with college at that point. Yeah, that's still not a pass. <laughs> really old. Yeah, high school like, oh twenty one to twenty two so seems old. really old. It wasn't old. a very yeah good movie. Again, it was an example of... Yeah, this movie wasn't... I kind of feel like the... the and no. maybe there's some other ones that we haven't explored. 
But it kind of seems like the Pygmalion, the theme of like the Pygmalion movies kind of just kind of got watered as time went on. And again, they just take solely that romantic aspect. And key, really the key thing is like that makeover aspects. And that's what stuck over time as opposed to uh-huh. in the movies we watched. And I'm sure there's some others that might have taken like both the class and the idea of someone falling in love with something they create as maybe something that's more harmful as opposed to powerful. But in these movies, it kind of just seems like they just take the idea of you create someone or create, change them in some way, you fall in love with that change, and now it's romantic. And that kind of seems like the moral of the story for this one. For Because I feel like she forgave him real quick for the bet. She forgave Paul Walker's character really quickly for the bet because he's the one who made the bet in the first place and you're going to problem with him. Like, it doesn't make sense. Our last movie, which is the furthest from the traditional Pygmalion trope. I thought it would be interesting to kind of look at it from a non-romantic lens. So the last movie we're going to be talking about is Princess Diaries, which came out in 2001. And the synopsis is a shy San Francisco teenager, Mia Thermopolis, played by Anne Hathaway, is thrown for a loop when, from out of the blue, she learns the the astonishing news that she's a real-life princess. As the heir apparent to the crown of the small European principality of Genovia, Mia begins a comical journey towards the throne when her strict and formidable grandmother, Queen Clarice Rinaldi, played by Julie Andrews, shows up to give her princess lessons. This movie was directed by Gary Marshall, so the same director as Pretty Woman. And the film scores on Metacritic, it has a 52%, which I feel like is very disrespectful, but whatever. And an 8.1 user score. Uh-huh. What's all these scores, scores in the 8.1? 81, 8.1, 81%. Oh. Or is it 8.1%? No, 81, like 8.1 is like 81%. So, yeah, sorry. Metacritic is weird. It does That's, like percentages for the user scores. And I was confused because you said Pretty Woman had an 8.0, right? Pretty Woman had 8.8. So it kind of shows a disparity between, especially for movies like this. I think we actually get into a short conversation about it. But you see why I was confused. I thought it was an 8.1%. Because I was like, that's straight. I thought it was disrespectful for Pretty Woman. And I was like, you know what? It's it's all right. Because I I know that um, Mm -hmm. Princess Diary is kind of like a beloved classic to a lot of like younger people. Yeah, so when no, I heard sorry. it at 8.1, like I was like, no, no way. 81%, yeah. Like, that's it ridiculous. It has a 48% basically, though. Okay. Or sorry, a 68% audience score. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, okay, so that's what I feel like for movies too. like this and She's All That and Pretty Woman and just general, like, again, this is kind of where we can go back into general, like, like movies made for teenagers and teenage girls in particular made for teenage girl why do you see such a disparity in the scores that the critics give it versus the scores that users and audiences give it and is it just because these movies aren't good or and not in my opinion aren't good but like you know the idea that the critics to the critics they just aren't good movies or is it they're kind of like an inherent bias because it's not like some gritty drama or something more along those lines? Because My Fair Lady was a lighthearted movie. And again, you yeah. do have to take into like, like what people were looking for at the time and then kind of like are Before people reviewing it now Before although it came out then because I had a 95% critical score. Gotten like a 80 or 90 back in the 
70s or 60s, but I think In the Heights got what, like a 70 something percent on Rotten Tomatoes? Like it was okayly reviewed. Like I think the taste of critics has 95% changed. 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh. And 84% on Metacritic. Well, excuse me. Yeah. It only has a 7 for the user score, though. So well, maybe that's the users, because it seems like a lot of the reviews I've seen, like from different people, was saying that it was a good movie, but it was definitely coming up short on a lot of aspects. But that's the difference between, I guess, that's why I guess you got to watch different reviews, because Rotten Tomatoes just does certified fresh well, versus Metacritic what, takes. Hmm? Metacritic is 84, and Metacritic. I know Metacritic is the aggregates yeah. of the scores, but Rotten Tomatoes is an aggregation of the good reviews versus the bad reviews. So yeah. no, I definitely get it. But I think that Princess Diaries was a film that was, it was similar to She's All That. It didn't really have a lot to say, but it was entertaining. So much, it's like I could sit through a movie where it's like, it doesn't have to have a deep message about the poverty in Genovia and how the queen is going to over, overtake the capitalistic system so the people don't eat. Like it, it doesn't have to say any of that because it was entertaining. It was fun to watch Mia go from like this nerdy girl to the princess of Genovia and the trials and tribulations she had to go through. One thing I forgot is that this whole film was in San Fran. I remember in my head, because mm-hmm. I kind of combined one and two together, was that she was that in was Genovia, Genovia, but in this one, she was in the U.S. the whole time. But I enjoyed the movie. Like, I, I sat there. Usually when I watch movies, and like, I usually do other things. I'll, like, read something online or, you know, play a game on my computer or stuff, like, while I'm watching a movie. But this movie, I actually sat there and just watched it. Because it engaged my mm-hmm. attention the whole time. And it was beat after beat after beat after beat. And each beat was like improving her as a princess, but also helping her come to realization as a person. And I did appreciate that aspect about it. So while it wasn't the deepest film or the most, you know, just like the deepest film, I think that it did good in conveying what it was trying to convey, which is be yourself. Pretty much, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I think also what's interesting about this one, if we're going to talk about like, Again, kind of Pygmalion aspects of it. The reason I thought this one might be interesting, again, is the princess lessons aspect and how she had to learn how to be more refined and more princess-like. But I feel like throughout that, instead of trying to change fundamentally who she was as a person, it was kind of more trying to enhance her, if that makes sense. Kind of like she could still be herself, but help her get over certain fears, like public speaking and she had these ideas and everything. There's certain way they did try to change just like the makeover scene, which is still one of my favorite makeover scenes in a movie. That was um, a good one. But again, we could talk about like like straightening her hair and plucking her eyebrows. That was supposed to make her more, you know, well, acceptable as a princess. When you talk about them but... changing her into a princess but not changing her as a person, I think that was the grandmother's arc because she wanted to change her, I think as a person to some extent to make her more refined because she thought like, in order to be a refined princess, you have to be a refined person. Mm-hmm. But then she started to learn, like, oh, no, my granddaughter is good enough to be a princess. As, as who she is. Yeah. It's like when she, she went to, to the... She had to learn how to be a grandmother. Yeah, she had to learn how to be... Yeah, because, like I said, the white magical Negro, he came up to them <laughs> and was like... Joe. He was like, you're acting how's the princess, but you have to ask how's your granddaughter. And she mm-hmm. was like, oh, okay, I've been really asked about my granddaughter. I've been the whole time concerned about her becoming a princess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think that kind of carries through to the next movie as well, where it's kind of like their bond is what helps the movie. Joe and... No, the princess and her grandmother and the princess and the queen, where it's just like not just the princess and the queen, because you see in certain moments where it's kind of like she is feels like she's embarrassing her grandmother and then her grandmother will find ways to relate to her. So again, 
you have the first time that she's out in public as the princess or as a princess to be where she goes to that dinner and she kind of like a series of hijinks happens that kind of are just made to be humorous for younger people but she feels embarrassed and her grandmother's like the very first time I did this I like tripped or did something like that and I embarrassed myself so don't be too hard on yourself in the moment where her grandmother was hard on her were actions that weren't of her own making you know like she trusted the wrong people essentially and I also have a huge issue just will be watching it back with the fact that the paparazzi were trying to take nudes of a 15 year old girl and acting like it was normal I'm like this and they were only the second worst villain in the film because the worst villain was her best friend that girl was horrible I was watching this like wait what is is she the villain in this movie because she she was was terrible when she was talking about her dad being dead She's like, are you still not over that? And she's like, it's been two months. I'm like, imagine your dad dying two months ago and your friend being like, you still harping on that? Like, come on, what? And then she was back. Coming a princess. And then when she said, I'm not going to be like, princess what? anymore. I wanted you to be a princess. Like, be a princess. You like, are oh a flip-floppy, wish, wish, like, wishy-washy, and then mean. And then, like, when she got her hair straightened, I'm like, girl, your hair is straight. I don't understand why... I'm like, dang, like she's literally crying in her car and her friend is still berating her and then got mad at her for her not accepting her berating her. Like, well, then we're not. I'm like, wow. Yeah, no, she, I don't know whose idea was it to make a best friend so cool, but <laughs> she was wicked. It really wasn't nice. Like, I feel like, and you know what it is? I do feel like they're 15. I think it's something you have to remember. So I guess. 15, I, yeah. Friends? Like, if not, you're not going to paint her as the best friend. If she, like, I understand that you might have, like, like a Gretchen Wiener situation where she's your friend, but she's really plotting behind you. This girl is supposed to be, like, friend. her best yeah, friend. That, but she you, was just a jerk. I was like, they, she has no they, redeeming they qualities. They should give us more reason to understand. Because I think they try to mask it with, like, just the she was jealous of her. But jealous. it was kind of like yeah. certain things she did were just kind of, like, a step, but, step too far. It's kind of like, how, you know how Mean Girl, she had her best friend who was kind of just blunt mm-hmm. and straightforward. But you could tell that she was yeah. still nice. I think that's what they were trying to do. Like have the blunt tray for a first friend who tell us that it tell mm-hmm. it as it is. But she just came off as cruel yeah, and a jerk. It was like, I don't buy that you're a good like person. moments where she defended her. So like when although she got on her in the in the limo about her hair in the classroom, she was like, Leave her alone about her hair. Let us learn about the lesson or whatever. And I think that would have worked better if we didn't just see her berating her. Berating about her hair or about her new backpack like she already told you her grandmother's trying to like you know help her out and do all this other stuff so why are you now mad that she has a new backpack it wasn't even like like we just carry jans for her whole life like go on it was just like it was a regular backpack backpack that was like leather so it's kind of like she's getting it from all ends and then she didn't yeah she was getting from her grandmother her grandmother got her got closer but she was getting it from her grandmother for a while and then her best friend, and then, like, yeah, the girls in her school, the Lana and Hannah and Anna and whatever, they were, like, hard. I'm like, why are you so mean to her? She literally is doing absolutely nothing. Like, that's true. You know, teenagers can actually be mean to random people for no reason. I was for her when she uh, did a little ice cream thing, and the teachers were like, oh, yeah. Dry cleaning. I'm like, I don't think a teacher could do that, but. That was Sandra mm, O, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think this was actually fun fact Anne Hathaway's one of Anne Hathaway's first movies and like I just saw this the other day because it just turned 20 other people up for the role were like Scarlett Johansson which Emmy Rossum it was up for Oscar that year no no for the role of Mia Thermopolis 
Emmy Rossum, and then a couple of other actresses. I can't remember their name. I can't see Scarlett Johansson. I think Anne Hathaway was kind of actually perfect for this role. Yeah, but I'm, I could see Scarlett Johansson. I don't know. In I feel like role. she's not as nerdy looking. Not, you, not you sympathetic. Make people look... not, not nerdy, but like sympathetic as a. Maybe it's because I. Know but I think she doesn't take a lot of roles where you got to be sympathetic. That's for her, true. So like she was like she was sympathetic in like a Marriage Story. She was sympathetic in JoJo's. So I think it's all about the roles that you take. Yeah. And Hathaway picks a lot of different kind of roles. So yeah. she could play like sympathetic character. She could play mean character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Hathaway was in her bag in the early 2000s. Yeah. Like she was doing everything. She was with Ella Enchanted. Yeah. Then Devil Wears Prada. She was in a bunch of stuff. But yeah. So that's the last movie. And again, before we wrap up for Princess Diaries, what were your biggest takeaways in terms of the similarities versus differences from the rest of the movies. Had a very bare bone similarities to them, you know, the whole Pygmalion change a person into what you need them to be in order to fulfill the role that you want them to fulfill. I mean, this one, she was trying to become a princess and pretty woman. She was becoming his girlfriend, I guess. The other two, she was becoming a maiden of the court as kind of woman. And then she's all that. I don't know what she was becoming. She was all that. The prom queen. Yeah, the prom queen. So I think that it had a very bare bones similarity to all of them. Because, you know, these, the thing about Pygmalion is that it could play into a lot of different genres. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be one specific genre. Now, the ones we watched were all romantic-esque kind of films. But I would like to see a Pygmalion film where it's like, I'm going to turn you into a, shoot, basketball player, I guess. I don't know. There's like a many different place. ways I've you could. Oh, yeah, trading places. places. They, they turned into a Wall Street trader. Old. That was a good one. I've actually mm-hmm. seen that movie before. Or I just like to see it played with different genres. Like, I think that Million Dollar Baby, you could think, look at that as a Pygmalion film where he turns her into a boxer. Like, there's different ways you could play with that trope. But like you said, maybe there needs to be like a hint of romanticism for it to be considered Pygmalion because every rag to riches story isn't a Pygmalion film as as well. That's his own genre, which is rag to riches. Yeah. You said, overall, I enjoyed most of the movies we watched for this episode. And I do think it's interesting kind of to see how the Pygmalion trope in the ones or theme in the ones that we watch kind of got watered down from that initial classism that you mentioned in the, that the author intended for the initial play to be into just more of a bare bones, again, romance movie with that. I'm not even rags to riches, but just like that man changing a woman or person changing another person into who they envision them to be and then falling in love falling in love or just making that person yeah be that this new entity that they weren't before so i think that's like an interesting way to to look at it so that's kind of it for me any other final thoughts okay so ready okay so these movies and just seeing the similarities between them i personally i enjoyed almost everything and glad we decided to take a deep dive into it so with that i would like to end the episode thank you for listening to this week's episode of black that brooklyn film show please remember to rate review and subscribe wherever you can thank you and goodbye